Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Lee Lampert to our show. Dr. Lampert is the Chancellor of Pima Community College in Tucson, Arizona. Hi, Lee. I'm so happy to have you on our show today. Uh, well, good afternoon, Dave, and glad to be on the show. And please feel free to call me Lee. Oh, okay. So tell me about Pima Community College and why students select your institution. So, so we're, we're a 40,000 plus uh, student institution with five campuses, plus what I like to say Pima Online and multi-campus district. And so our focus is really about uh, serving uh, the community of Pima County and Southern Arizona and beyond. And the focus is really around student success, community engagement, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that, that's our North Star. And I think as long as we stay focused to those three things, that keeps us on the path. And so because of that, you know, we, we realize we have to continue to be affordable and accessible, uh, continue to offer small class sizes, uh, provide multiple on-ramps uh, for, for students, uh, offer multiple modalities, uh, and then just be, you know, stay true to our transfer, transfer mission uh, to the universities, but also make sure we have strong workforce development programs, which is another important part of our mission. And then make sure we have, you know, strong adult education uh, programs, especially for those who, who, for whatever reasons, don't have their high school diploma or equivalency, and so that they can engage into either that transfer or workforce side, and then address the whole reality around uh, uh, the skills deficit, especially around uh, math. Uh, or the numeracy, I'd like to say, and then the whole reading and writing pieces. So when you bring all that together, that's, that's Pima, and, and that's why people come to us. I mean, we are, I always like to say, we are, we are at the intersections of hopes, dreams, aspiration, and goals. And that's what community colleges are about. I, I like that statement. That's a, that's a very nice statement, to say the least. Uh, what's new at Pima Community College, then? So we, we've been, uh, thanks to our board support and laying the foundation, going back to when I first started, I've been at Pima now for about uh, eight years. Actually, come July 1, it will be eight years. And I came here at a time that, the, the, that Pima was facing a lot of controversy, a lot of crisis. And leading through that period, I also realized that what wasn't here was this notion of having an educational master plan that would actually chart the vision. So as we work through the difficult issues, it was to work through difficult issues to get to a better place. So it wasn't just let me fix these problems, but it was to fix the problems to get to a better place. So we laid out a, a, a very bold vision for the institution. And so we are actually executing on that very well right now. A big part of that is uh, centers of excellence. Mm. And, and we've developed the centers of excellence in applied technology, uh, in IT, cybersecurity, the healthcare area, public safety, hospitality, uh, and culinary, and the arts and humanities. 
So, so you're seeing us really take what we do to a whole new level of excellence. And that is we want to be a premier community college. We, we, we're not happy just being average or mediocre. We want to be among the best. So what, uh, what some of your, um, I, I'd assume you would say all our programs are excellent, but what's some of the, what's some of the programs that seem to draw the most students to your facility? Uh, I think that our transfer program to, especially to the University of Arizona, has always had a consistent appeal for students. And I think that that remains true even through the rough periods to, to now. Now you overlay that with the fact that we are a Hispanic serving institution. Uh, you know, uh, you know it, the number has shifted, but the percentage is probably around 45, 47% of our students are Hispanic. Uh, so large Hispanic serving institution. And then when you add in uh, our other communities of color, we're well above 50%. So we're a majority minority institution, and I'm very proud to say that, and a very diverse community here in, in the Southern Arizona area. Uh, but, so, but then it's that workforce piece that we've really started to reinvest and bring to a new level of standard. And that's where the Centers of Excellence is really about. So we just did a ribbon cutting on our brand new 45,000 plus square foot Automotive Innovation Technology Center. We're, we're going to uh, hopefully in about a year or so from now, be doing another ribbon cutting on our 100,000 square foot applied technology center. Uh, and then probably by February-ish, into February of next year, we'll be uh, doing a ribbon cutting, or at least the building, the facilities complete, that the doubling of our aviation technology center. And then we're just, uh, uh, secured a architect to begin the process for the remodeling of our allied health building to expand from, a, from about a 45,000 footprint to a hundred thousand footprint uh, around uh, the whole allied health area. And then, and then we're remodeling our science facilities. Uh, and then we are going to do some adaptive reuse of some hotel properties. So you can see a lot of great stuff going on. I can go on and on about this. And I'm just oh, so excited <laughs> that, that, you know, we, we just did a whole remodel in our East campus around uh, for our center of excellence for IT and cybersecurity. Uh, we really uh, embrace this notion around cybersecurity. As you know, uh, I think cyber is, I think everybody's paying attention to this now in a way that they probably weren't thinking until more recently where with all these ransomwares, all mm -hmm. these attacks that are, you know, shutting down you know, things in our, in our country. So we need cybersecurity professionals. So what makes us unique in that space is we have a great partnership with the Cyber Warfare Range. It's a nonprofit organization. And it's, it's what it is, is it's a community of cyber professionals who do this for a living. So they created this organization. And so what we did is we partnered with them and they created what we call, what we refer to as a live fire cyber warfare range that is co-located on our East campus. So our students can come in and sit side by side with trained professionals and go into the dark net uh, and actually learn how it actually is done uh, as opposed to simulations, theoretical stuff, you know, hypotheticals. They get to be right there with people who actually do the stuff. It's incredible. 
what's what's happening with with our our programs. It, we partnered with Google. We're getting ready to roll out AWS Cloud, and so just the massive transformation uh, that is underway. So those are just some of the things that are going on at Pima Community College. You know that's exciting. I, I need to share with you. I I do get a lot of parents, believe it or not, that listen to this podcast. I was surprised, but they're always interested in kind of what their local uh, community college or what their local university does. So is there anything else you want to share with, with those potential uh, uh, students or potential parents about your facilities and what happens at Pima Community College? So what we have done in partnership with the National Coalition of Certification Centers, which I'm a founding member of, is we created what we call National Signing Day. And what that's about is, you know, so much attention is given to athletes. And, you know, you're recruiting these athletes and you do this big fanfare around signing them and so forth. Well, why aren't we doing that for people who enter into cybersecurity programs, who enter into business programs, who enter into nursing programs? Well, guess what? We're doing that. We want the parents to realize that your daughter or your son is just as special and just as important as that athlete who's going to come play on the football team, or on the basketball team or whatever that sport may be. And probably, to be truth be told, they are more important to our success of our communities, success of our societies, because we need more nurses, right? We need more cyber professionals. We need more uh, uh, A&P techs who work on our airplanes. We need more people who are skilled working on our cars. All of those middle skill areas that are so crucial, and by the way, very hard to outsource to other countries, uh, we do it at your local community college, and nobody does it better than Pima Community College. You know, I'm going to I want to get off topic just a minute because you made a comment earlier on about uh, your mission and as far as diversity, inclusion and equity. Uh, so if I was a so if I was a college president starting out with trying to start moving toward that, what suggestions would you give me to help me? What have you done that maybe? I could do as a college president? I, I think first and foremost, uh, for me, and this is what I did here at, at Pima Community College. And by the way, I was my first presidency was at Shoreline Community College in Seattle, Washington area. It, it all starts with you, the leader. And what's your mindset? Is your, do you come with a growth mindset or do you come to the table with a fixed mindset? And, and you know, if you ask people that, they'll say, of course I have a growth mindset. Uh, but then, but are you a person who likes to say no? Or are you a person that likes to say yes and? And, and then are you a person who's willing to use courage to break through the log jams that inevitably will occur when you're driving change? If you're not willing to drive change and use courage, you're, you're fixed mindset, not growth mindset. And so, so I think these are the important things I would say to a person first. What are you? What's your mindset? Now, with that said, when I arrived here in, in uh, Pima uh, County, uh, I, I went out and I started talking to people all over the community. And one of the reoccurring themes I heard was, we don't know who to interface with at the college. Because you, at the time we had six campuses, we had six different people we have to talk to and nothing seems to get done. I streamlined all that by listening to people, listening to businesses. By the way, I had dinner with Jim Click, 
uh, back then. And, and he told me like it was, right? And, and I heard the business community. So we created the, a vice president, vice president for workforce development, a single point of contact for business. And, and it's, that's the approach I like to take. It's like, get out there, listen, synthesize what you're hearing, look at how that aligns with how your organization is structured and what kinds of tweaks do you need to make so that you can be more responsive to the needs of the community. And at that stage in time, the business community was being ignored. And you think, well, you're a community college, how could you ignore the business community? Well, believe it or not, that's what was happening. Mm. Not, not uniformly, but in key pockets. Interesting. Well, I, I think I could get you to talk about Pima for the next two hours, but I'm going to switch a topic on you right now <laughs> and see if you're willing to talk a little bit about yourself and, and kind of talk about the path that, that you took to lead you to the position right now as the chancellor at Pima. Well, well thank you for the question. And I will just hit key snippets. Uh, so I, I went from high school to the University of Puget Sound to play football. I'm not a big guy, but I was fast and quick. And so I went there to play football. I had an accident while I was in high school. And, and when I got to the university, it really changed my mind. I was going to red shirt. I did red shirt. And I, and I didn't do so well my first year uh, of college. And I remember during the summer uh, trying to decide, do I go back or do I go do something else? And I sat in, in the seat of my car and, and I looked up and I saw the United States Army Recruiter's Office. So I go into the U.S. Army Recruiter's Office and the next thing you know, I'm taking the ASVAB. Next thing you know, I'm being shipped off to... Uh, to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, where I did basic training in AIT. So I spent two years active duty, and then I did some guard time and some reserve time with the United States Army. I'm third generation Army. My father was Army, myself, and then my nephew now. Uh, he graduated through the ROTC program at the University of Oregon. Uh, and so he, he's uh, up in uh, Fort Riley, Kansas, as we speak, as a first lieutenant. Uh, so, so but that was important because it gave me a sense of direction, a sense of purpose. And now I realize what I want to do with my life. So came out of there and decided I'm going to pursue law. And, and, and I, I went, went to Evergreen, finished Evergreen, ultimately go to law school, graduate law school. My first job, my first job offer uh, out of law school was with the prosecutor's office. I did not do that for very long. I mean, very, very short period of time. Um, and, and, and I ultimately realized what I loved the most was when I was a student. And I got to be a, a student worker. And I spent just a brief amount of time when I had graduated uh, doing some jobs on a campus. And I thought, if I could ever have a chance to get back into that environment, I'm going to take it. So I get hired by the Evergreen State College to be a special assistant to the president for civil rights. Ultimately, they add the legal affairs piece in later. And that started my career in higher education. Uh, let me fast forward. So I was at Centralia College, the midway point between Seattle and Portland as a VP for legal, uh, HR and legal affairs. I get hired at Shoreline Community College. I get there. Unfortunately, the president had a vote of no confidence. Like, you know, the, the faculty announced it the month I arrived by the following month, they delivered the votes. And then the next thing you know, you know, I'm on a committee looking at what, what's going on. And then the board ultimately decides to make a change. 
And then not too long after that, they come to me and say, well, will you be the acting? And then they turn around and say, won't you be the interim while we do a national search? They do a national search and then they realize you're the guy we want. I didn't apply for the job. I told them I'm not interested. I'm just going to help you get through this difficult time. I uncovered there that the college was actually operating in the, in the, in the red. Um, and, and, and that's because of some things uh, that had happened external to the college. But anyways, uh, they asked me to, to be the president. And that's how I became a president. Uh, so let me hit on some key things. Uh, well, actually, one of your questions actually gets into this. Uh, if I address it now, because it's about leadership style. Um, oh, go, yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's talk about your leadership style, since it seems like to be part of the story for us. So, uh, so when you think about what was going on in the mid 2000s, going through up until the, the new decade we're, we're in now, um, um, there was, th- uh, Jared Diamond wrote a book called Collapse, published in, I think, 2005. And part of that's about environmental issues. Um, and I'll come back to that. Bob Johansson, uh, you know, out of the uh, Futures Institute, published a book, and I think it was 2009, Leaders Make the Future. Uh, the U.S. Congress had commissioned a report uh, uh, around the Abraham Lincoln Study Abroad Fellowship Program, looking at uh, global competitiveness and national uh, security. Um, and so, so when I take all of these things, right, that started to shape what was ultimately going to become my leadership style. And then and I'll overlay one other piece to this. Uh, so I was born in uh, Seoul, South Korea. My mother's uh, Korean. And uh, I came over to the U.S. with my mother by, by a ship. Literally, I was on a ship that came across the Pacific Ocean. And, and then I had the good fortune to go back to South Korea during my middle school years. So we left uh, Seoul in 1977. The then governor of the state of Washington, she liked to lead uh, trips to uh, trade missions abroad. So she asked her education folks to join her as part of that. So I went on one of the trips. One of the trips took me back to, to South Korea. The airport I flew into wasn't the airport I flew out of. So they go from Kimpo Airport to Incheon Airport. Incheon Airport is the world's number two airport. Uh, I go to look where we used to live. I couldn't find it. Uh, When I left, there was uh, two bridges across the Lower Han. I think there's like 27. And I'm like, wait a minute. If South Koreans in the span of my, at that point, 30 years could do all of this. And by the way, they put in a world-class subway system. we got to wake up as a country in the United States. And so you take all of those things I just touched on, that shapes my leadership style. It's about uh, disruption. It's about change. It's about helping people realize we have to move to a different place now. The 21st century is not the 20th century. We can't be comfortable with the way things are. And my responsibility is to bring that transformation. So I think of myself as a transformational leader, not just a servant leader. Servant leadership is a component in my mind of transformation leadership. 
and I think sometimes people confuse things, right? It's like servant leader just does what all the people want you to do. No, it's you listen to the voices of folks, but you combine those voices with the trends that you're seeing and the direction where the puck is going. And then you engage with folks to understand we have to make this transition, that transformation. And, and all of the sum total of my life experience has led me to developing that approach. And it ties back to this whole notion of the shift happens and a lot of other things that are, that are important. So five gaps is how I translate. And by the way, ETS did a report in 2007 talking about the, uh, um, um, uh, what was the term they used? Uh, it'll come back to me, but uh, uh, the perfect storm. So, I mean, they had already said there's gonna be substantial disparities in skills. They already said there's gonna be serious uh, wage gaps. They already said that there's gonna be this demographic shift. All of this was being telegraphed back when I was being minted as a new president. Wow. Bring it fast forward and what are we seeing? The very things that have been telegraphed. Excellent. And my leadership style is embedded in that in terms of that transformational focus of leadership. Well, you mentioned shift happens and it looks like your institution put out a, basically was a paper entitled shift happens at Pima community college, the future of working and learning. So why did Pima shift? That's my first question. And then of course, what has been the results of that shift? Um, so some of it is embedded in what I already uh, touched on. Right. Uh, but now you overlay the realities of industry 4.0. And then what's driving industry 4.0 is this notion of the four superpowers. So Pat Gessinger, he's the former CEO of VMware, coming out of Davos, wrote, wrote an article about the four superpowers. And, and he said, these are not nation states. These are not countries. These are AI, mobile technology, cloud computing and the internet of things. They are the enablers of industry 4.0, the integration of digital, the physical and biological, right? So, so then, so you have that on one hand and then you come back to the realities of the demographics because in shift happens two paper before the Pima one, uh, they talked about working learners and learning workers. And it was important to understand that distinction because a working learner is somebody who's not likely to have that degree or that certification, whereas that learning worker is more likely to have that. And so the working learners, which comprise you know, the vast majority of the American workforce, are gonna now have to shift their skills in, in response to the reality of Industry 4.0, but where are they going to go to get those skills? Well, in my mind, they need to be coming to the community college, provided we have the infrastructure to support that. So when you bring that all together, that's, that is the shift that's happening at Pima, is putting that focus on those uh, working adults and those, uh, those, you know, those working learners and those learning workers because that's where the opportunity space, it's not to ignore the traditional because that's still gonna be important, uh, but it's recognizing that, that you have to do more than just focus on the traditional high school direct student uh, because that's a shrinking demographic for one. 
but also uh, we have all these folks who need to be reskilled and upskilled. And we are in the best place to, to do that. And so those are kinds of things that underlie this, this notion of shift. And so that's why the center of, of excellence uh, that I talked about earlier are crit critical components uh, of that shift and just recognizing there's this transformation that's underway in our communities all across the United States. So is there going to be a follow-up to this, to this paper that you just put out in 2019? <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I think when we get to 2025, maybe that's a good time to really, uh, you know, reflect back and say, what, what have we been able to accomplish? I've listed some of that, you know, we are actually starting to bring online the centers of excellence and, and we're going to be able to serve more individuals than we ever have been. Uh, and, you know, I think in the report, we actually touch on this. Uh, so we uh, entered into a partnership with Caterpillar to create a uh, uh, advanced uh, technology academy. And what that really academy is about is uh, the upskilling of engineers. And because a lot of engineers come out of engineering schools, great with the theory, uh, and but they don't have the applied side. So they come up with great designs and solutions, but they can't be machined, they can't be welded. And so that costs the company lots of money to redo things. But if they understood what goes on from a machining standpoint, they know how to at least basically understand machining, or they know how to weld in some other applied areas, it would make them better engineers. So that's why we created this academy. But the problem we were challenged with at the time of the report is our footprint was too small. So we can only do so many folks at one time. Uh, other major employers have an interest in uh, sending their engineers to us. And so that Applied Technology Center of Excellence I made a reference to earlier, that we're gonna have a whole uh, dedicated space uh, called the Flexible Industry Training Lab, Fit Lab, to accommodate the needs of our business partners to do this type of training at a much larger scale. And so, so so that's why when we come to 2025, then we can look back and say, did we actually hit the marks that we were hoping to hit? Like with aviation, when we put that together, we did that with uh, our aviation partners because you know today, I mean, they need more pilots. They need more people who can uh, work and service the planes. By the way, that did not change because of COVID in terms of having people working on the planes because people were massively retiring. And so just retirements alone, you need people to replace. That doesn't factor in the growth of the industry. The growth in the industry was stunted, obviously, but you still need people to service those planes. So when those planes sat on the ground, they still need to be powered up every now and then. So someone has to be able to do that. Someone needs to be there to do the maintenance. And, and that was a great time for us to, to make sure that we could continue to grow our program. So by doubling the size of our student body, uh, AMP technicians was an important part of that project. So, uh, so we're excited about things like that. Uh, trying our best to meet the needs. You know, um, when I was a Dean and I was part of an engineering school, I was taking care of the two-year components. I was the two-year Dean at the university. We had engineers come down to us to take machining classes and welding classes for exactly what you said. Right. I, I am surprised most engineering programs don't do that. So I think that's right. wonderful that, that you guys have the forethought to, to see the need for engineers to do that. 
<laughs> Great point, Dave. And really what it underlies, again, it goes back to my earlier point, right? When you're a growth mindset and you're going to sit with a business partner and think and uh, as opposed to no or uh, or or you're thinking yes but versus yes and right yes and how do we do this and the the curriculum we co-developed it that was another important piece of this we didn't develop the curriculum we co-developed the curriculum when we launched the autonomous vehicle driver program i believe we referenced that in the report uh, we co-developed that with too simple it wasn't Pima developed it. We know best. You tell us and we do it. No, we did it together. Uh, and I think that's going to be an important part of these shifts that are going to happen, right, is you're going to have more involvement by business and industry. They're going to want to drive the curriculum. They're going to want to drive the assessments. And we have to be willing to be a partner in doing all of that. Uh, and then when we do that, we all thrive together. That's another part of that shift that's happening. And that connects me back to NC3 uh, as well. And I think we reference NC3 and the shift happens report as well. Sure seems like you have a pretty good handle of looking into the future sometimes. How do you <laughs> see higher ed evolving over the next five to 10 years to meet the needs of industry and business? Well, here's what's interesting when you start to peel it back. So I'll take us back to that uh, latter part of the first decade of the 2000s. Um, so Snap-on, uh, their headquarters is in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Gateway Technical College is in their backyard. Uh, they didn't really have a transformational relationship up until Brian Albrecht became the president. So they started to, to start to develop a, a better relationship and partnership. And one of the things that Snap-on um, was concerned about was they were creating these great world-class products. But when they sold them, the businesses weren't able to leverage the, the greatest value of these uh, high-tech products they were bringing to market. And, and then they realized one of the reasons for that is the individuals being trained on it weren't being trained to understand the full capability of the products and the tools, et cetera and that the lowest common denominator in that is the faculty member, the teacher. So working with Gateway, they came and visited with, with me and Shoreline because we are a partner of Snap-on. And, and in a few other of us, we all got together and formed what, what is called the National Coalition of Certification Centers. So here you see this greater emphasis on industry recognized um, and it's, tied to the industry and it's being uh, blessed by the industry and that's so industry recognized certifications, right? And they're micro certs that you embed into your existing curriculum. Uh, and then those are stackable to a larger award, if you will, whether it's that larger certificate or degree. And so you start to see this evolution that we all talk about now, right? The industry recognized the, the, the micro credentials, uh, you know, working with employers. Well, we were doing this already in C3. And, and so train companies, part of the NC3 network, Festo's part of the NC3 network, 3M's part of the NC3 network, Apple's, you get what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. So you've seen all these companies now 
coming around and our focus is on advanced manufacturing, aerospace, transportation, uh, green energy, and a, and, a, and a number of other areas. And it all comes back to supporting the faculty member to be, to be the best at what they do. So we do a train the trainer tied to the industry's needs. And, and, and so industry is developing this world-class curriculum tied to the world-class products. And we're training the faculty to maximize delivery on those. So they bring it back to the classroom. Uh, and, and that's the future. And it was embedded in the past. Uh, and, and I think you're gonna see more of that. But what, what is now coming out of this is more micro pathways, more micro credentials, realizing that you gotta break things apart into smaller chunks, and then you can stack those uh, to that larger award if that's what you want as an individual. This becomes important for the adult learner who may not have time to come in for extended periods of time. Maybe all they need to know is how to use that latest diagnostic tool. And that's all they need. So they don't need to come in for a whole semester. Let me just come in for a couple of weeks, highly intensive, and then I leave, right? In fact, I'll use it in another area. So when Bombardier sat down with us and said, you know, we need, you're not producing enough AMP technicians quick enough. And it's not because of Pima, it's just, you know, this is the reality, right? Would you consider part 65 of the FAA regulations that allows a person who has experience on aircraft to take, which is akin to a boot camp, so they can sit for the licensure? So we said, absolutely, we will set up this boot camp. So in less than four weeks, if you have prior aircraft experience, you go through our boot camp and then you can sit for the licensure. So you're coming out of the United States Air Force. You've been working on, on those aircraft there. Now you can sit for that licensure without going through an 18 month training program. Uh, and so that's the future. And, and so we're partnering with the Ed Design Lab as part of a six college uh, uh, pilot project to strengthen micro pathways and using a T profile model, embedding a 21st century uh, 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 certification, uh, along with the technical certification uh, for students in these micro pathways tied to a larger pathway. So that work is already underway. And we're, and so we're now evolving to what we call a universal design of the curriculum. And what I mean by that is, uh, if you're already building the curriculum, build it with non-credit in mind, with the short-term uh, notion in mind that can be stackable. It's like you go to build your house, you, you know you got to lay the foundation, so you're going to lay the foundation. Why not lay the foundation that will allow you to build a two-story house, even though you might build a one-story house to begin with, right? Because now yeah. I, have I have room to expand because I came in with a more universal design on the front end. And so why not take those concepts? And so we're talking about the legalization of higher education. So, you know, Legos, you can take all these little Lego pieces, snap them together. They're, you know, they, they, you know, and you can create beautiful designs out of this, right? And I encourage uh, your listeners, you haven't been to Legoland, go to Legoland, <laughs> San Diego. And, you know, it's, I mean, you know, even, even us adults can go and enjoy Legoland, right? But, but the point being, right, is 
we're at that point now where things can be snapped together. They can be broken apart and put back together and create some wonderful things, but it all requires you to have a design that allows you to have that flexibility. And, and you're already putting the time in, already putting the money in, so put it in to do it this way, the legalization of higher education. And that's where we're headed. And then you have that on the curriculum development side. And then what you're gonna have is the learner, because of the technology tools today, we can get back to that one school, uh, one student schoolhouse or you know concept, because now you can customize and personalize the learning to the individual. And our system was designed to uh, cater to the middle uh, and have a number of people in the room cater to the middle. Unfortunately, the students on the bottom are the ones who are probably most negatively impacted by that model. But now we can customize and personalize because we can do assessment and diagnose a, a, a young person's learning style. And then let's give them the attention they need. That's what equity is about, right? Equity is not treating everybody the same. Equity is treating people based on what they need so that they can get to a similar outcome. And, and so I think that's also part of the future when you start thinking of it that way. And then another part of the future is everybody matters. Our system wasn't built for everybody to be successful. Now, more than ever, everybody matters. We need to make sure everybody's going to be successful. And, and for no other reason, uh, if you wanna you know, say it's for altruistic reasons or whatever, because the sands demic, less people, uh, you know, the demographics are not in our favor in the United States, low fertility rates back, dating back to the 70s. We're not at replacement rate anymore. It ain't gonna happen. Immigration is not gonna solve our sandemic problem any, any longer. Technology is not going to, robots aren't gonna replace humans, right? You can't build enough robots to replace humans. So it's a human plus machine world. And so every human is going to matter now. And our education system has to adapt so that every human works away with the skills they need to function in a 21st century environment where learning is truly lifelong. It's no longer a cliche. It is truly lifelong. You know, I was getting ready to say that my whole academic career, we always talked about lifelong learners, but you're actually now, we're actually starting to do it. Uh, yes, that's right. I, I can't figure out why some colleges and universities still try to put that, you know, that round peg in a square hole or a square peg in a round hole. I don't understand why they keep trying to keep on this path that hinders students instead of trying to promote, learn, as you said, short, you know, uh, micro credentials, a short learning, go work, come back, become a lifelong learner to continue your education. And, and I think it goes back to how we built our system, right? And, and, and now that fixed mindset versus growth mindset way of approaching things and also realizing it's really about putting the student truly in the center. And we don't like to refer to them as students anymore. They're learners because a student implies you come to me and I'm going to give you a bunch of information. A learner is not treated that way. A learner, we're co-equals and together we're going to co-create and we're going to learn together. And by the way, faculty have to also see themselves as learners too. Uh, and so we're learning together. And, but if all you're doing is giving out knowledge, the iPhone has replaced you. you, you, you you're no, no, YouTube has replaced you. Uh, and so, so 
the reality is, I think as a faculty member, as educators, our job is to inspire, to facilitate learning. Uh, and also we have to be willing to be learning and growing ourselves, right? So we're co-creating and, and that's what's exciting. I mean, to me, this is all exciting. Uh, and, and it's not something to be afraid of. And I think that what the pandemic did, it really broke down a lot of assumptions because leading up to the pandemic, you had a number of individuals who said, well, you know, online is not, and I can't do online. And it's like, well, guess what? And in a lot of cases, less than a month, people were doing online. And so you can't tell me you can't. Now let's talk about whether you want to. That's a different conversation, right? But now you've done it, so you can't tell me you can't do it. Now we can talk about quality. How do we improve? And the world, truth be told, is not going to be online versus face-to-face. It's going to be a combination of online, face-to-face. It's going to be more blended, more hybrid. And and that's what makes learning so exciting. And it's going to allow for more democratization of learning. It's going to allow us to go out to the rural communities, especially if they solve the digital divide problem, uh, and create greater access for people. That's why I, I love what's going on uh, if we're not afraid of it. Well, you get me excited about uh, the future, to say the least. I, I, like I said, I, I, I really hope that more and more academic leaders are starting to have your mindset as far as what we're going to be doing in the future, because it sounds exciting if we do it the way you're suggesting it. Uh, absolutely, Dave. And and, you know, and I, I just give my hats off to, you know, people who've come before me who have laid the foundation for the evolution. And, and now I feel like it's my responsibility to do the same thing for that next gen of, uh, of academicians who are going to be coming forward so that we continue to, you know, pass that baton and pay it forward. Well, well let's talk about passing that baton. So uh, let's talk once again about you and some of the biggest lessons you have learned as an academic leader. Uh, what advice would you give new chancellors as far as stepping into a, to a, to a role of being a, either a community college president or a uh, university chancellor? Um, and, and I kind of touched on this earlier. Um, start with you. Understand you. What are your values? What are your beliefs? Uh, because that's going to matter when you're faced and confronted with challenge. And in a simple illustration, are you someone who wants to be liked and loved? Are you really about doing the right thing? Uh, and, and sometimes they, they align, but, but oftentimes they don't. So understanding that about you, know yourself, know thyself, right? I think, you know, we hear that, but I think it's really true when you come into that role, because in many ways, it is a lonely place. They're, your only friend are the people you knew before you went into the role and they aren't your friends you had in the organization. <laughs> Remember that, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so, so uh, and I think that's hard for a lot of people to get past. Um, and so that's one, one piece. I would say, you know, go out and learn, be curious, have a sense of wonder, uh, uh, travel the world, go experience a lot of things because that's going to enhance your leadership. Go see the South Koreas. Go see the Pudongs in Shanghai. You know, uh, go to the non-Western world. 
And that was, by the way, that was one of the conclusions in that report I made reference to in the Abraham Lincoln study piece is that U.S. Americans know far less about the rest of the world than the rest of the world knows about us. And oh, by the way, when we do go abroad, we only seem to go to Western countries or to Mexico. We don't go to, to you know, the Asias and to the Middle East and, the, and to the Africas that are the emerging parts of the globe. So go out and experience those things because then that's gonna make you a better leader when you have seen it firsthand and experienced it uh, firsthand. Uh, and, and read widely. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my f- favorite books is The Coldest Winter. Uh, you know, it's not what you might associate with the typical leadership book, but it is about leadership. And you really learn about not only about the Korean War, but all the things that are attendant to the Korean War. And, and you start to realize, man, a lot of things we see today, you get just taking it back to, to, the, to the 50s during the Korean War and just fast forward it to today, right? I mean, it's so important to read widely and, and but also, you know, uh, take time for yourself and, 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 and manage your emotions and don't let the stress get the best of you. I don't drink, I don't smoke. I mean, I, and those by intention, by the way, those are by choice that I don't do th- those things. I don't swear. I mean, I, I, have, I have cleaned up my act, if you will. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and I did that for a reason, because I want to be a role model for everybody, right? And how can I be the role model if I'm not actually doing, I'm not perfect, I'm human, but I realize I have to constantly try to evidence what I talk about. Well, since you mentioned books, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you is if you had any uh, uh, favorite uh, leadership books that you would like to share with the audience as far as might help in new uh, academic leaders. Um, do you have any, any others to suggest? Um, so currently I'm reading a book called Hyperlearning um, and it's by Ed Hess. Uh, and it is touching on some of the things I was touching on earlier, right? And so what it really was, a, it was a reaffirmation for me of some of the things that I, that I, uh, that I believe um, about, you know, focusing on yourself and, and really understanding that much better. And then, and then from there you can, uh, then how do I take that and apply it to an organization? How do I support teams better? Uh, and, 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 and building off of all of those kinds of things. And so uh, that's, that's uh, uh, what I would highly encourage everyone to read that, the hyper learning piece. And I think uh, uh, I'm trying to, uh, it's like uh, I'm having a mental block right at the moment. But uh, so, um, so one of my favorite books, I just can't remember the, the author right off the top of my head, uh, The Plague. So, so I, you know, I read The Plague many years ago. Now, and why I bring that up, because in many ways, that's the pandemic. If you read the book and you realize that was the playbook for the pandemic, uh, because early on there were the signs of the plague when the, the good doctor was out there telling people nobody would listen to him until it was in full outbreak mode. And then, and then, then at some point, even though it wasn't over, 
people wanted it to be over. So they started going back to their old habits. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so you have this. Uh, and so that's why I say read wide, widely, because our forerunners, they had a lot of wisdom that they shared with us. And, and sometimes you don't even connect the dot until something happens like a pandemic. Uh, and so I realized going through the change process, what I did here for, at Pima as an example. So I was in Seattle when, when that first set of cases were coming out of Kirkland, Washington. Uh, I was at a conference, the League for Innovation. And so I got on the phone with my board chair. I got on the phone with my chief of staff. So we need to develop a plan. Uh, and the plan would be, what would it look like if we shut the college down? I, I get back to Tucson and probably the week after I'm suspending our operations, full stop, everything's going to be transitioned to online. We were about 30% online prior to the pandemic. And then we, we made the shift. We moved everything 100%, a combination of what we call online and virtual. And then, uh, and then what we did was um, come the summer, we eased back a little bit and allowed for the career technical ed courses to happen uh, with a lot of social distancing, masking, you know, all that kind of stuff, the uh, contact tracing, et cetera. Um, but, but my point in all that is because having read the plague and just saw and thought about the human response, right? That led me to quickly act. And, and so we, we were, we, and people were critical of me. Why are you doing that? Well, I think history proves it out, right? And so now people want to rush back. Well, the thing is, it's a mixed bag now, right? Some people want to rush back, but not everybody. So it's now how do we make people feel safe to come back? And, and so that's where we're at now, working to help people feel safe to come back. and. And, and that's not, an e it may be more challenging than, than going into this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. Great points, Lee. Great points. Well, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Well, likewise, David, if you're ever in Tucson, you know, please let me know. And, oh, absolutely. I, and I'm going to find out that that Italian restaurant and, <laughs> and, and I'll shoot you an email with, uh, with the name of it. Yes, for me that was the best Italian restaurant I ever ate at was in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> so thanks for thanks for doing that. Well, that wraps you up bet. today's show. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time. <laughs>